0: So if you're there, mark chapter number eight. We'll go ahead and get started once I get set up. This morning, uh, we got Sarissa up, my daughter, who's 16 months old. And I told her, today is the day we go to church. Do you want to go to church? And she got the biggest smile on her face. She loves coming to church. She loves playing with her cousins in the nursery. And I like coming to church, too. I enjoy being here. I'm just so thankful that God has blessed me, that he's blessed all of us with what he's given us, that we have the opportunity to be here this morning. I enjoyed your special, Rachel. Thank you for that. Mark chapter number eight. uh, I guess this is the fifth Sunday I've been preaching now since my dad retired. And I think the first four, I have a list of somewhat of, I consider, foundational messages, that all of those other messages were kind of on that list where it, we were talking the first couple of weeks about by faith and what is faith and then how we're trying to apply faith as we look to the future and ask God to bless our church that we want to do the best we can but at the heart of it we want to follow the Bible we want to do what God said to the best of our ability and then as we do that we trust that God will bless us. Then we preached on unity and on bearing one another's burdens and trying to be together and on the same page. And I have a few other messages that I think kind of fit in that category. But all of that to say, none of them I quite seemed to feel right about bringing this week So I'm doing this one instead, which is just kind of some teaching and expository through Mark chapter number eight. We took our text from verse number 34 and 35. But what we're going to do is back up in the chapter and give a lot of the background and introduction and leading down to what Jesus had to say. And what was behind it, and I'm not sure, but I have a feeling it might be a two-part message. So at any rate, we'll look to this text this morning. We'll take our time. We'll see how far we get. And it might be next Sunday before I get to the main heart of the message. But uh, Andrew was talking this morning in Sunday School about how a lot of people with COVID have had a lot more quiet time than normal. Less time to travel to work, maybe quarantine, maybe even loss of a job. Uh, I had a little bit of that with COVID, but during the ice storm, I had a week where I didn't go to work with the condition of the roads and I had some quiet time. And so all that to say, that's when I got this message was taking some time in the afternoon to study. So the title that I've given it this morning is for my sake and the gospels for my sake and the gospels. And that comes out of verse number 35 Jesus said, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels, the same shall save it. But as I said, we'll back up, and let's begin a little bit earlier in the chapter, and I'll give you a little bit of introduction now, and we'll get into the message. This conversation between Christ and his disciples, where we read from in verse 34 and 35, it's Jesus and his disciples having a conversation. It happens following a time of great... Miracles verse number one through 10 of Mark chapter number eight records the miracle of seven loaves where Jesus took it to feed 4,000. We'll see from something that Jesus said directly. There was two different miracles. One time he took five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000. Another time he took seven loaves and fed 4,000 often in the gospels there's stories that are similar there's things that jesus is saying that are similar but sometimes it's what we call a parallel passage where it's the same miracle or the same sermon by jesus but it's told at a different point in the gospels at one point luke is telling the same story that john is telling other times there's stories and teachings ...that are similar, but that are different. Jesus walked around and had, as he traveled and preached and taught and did miracles... ...he did that for a three-year period, so no doubt there was sometimes he was preaching a message in one town... ...that was somewhat similar to what he had taught in the others. But at any rate, the first ten verses records that great miracle where Jesus miraculously fed the crowd that was hungry... We'll pick up in verse number 11, verse number 11. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. Now, when the Pharisees came to Jesus to question him, they did not come with honest questions. Rather, they came trying to tempt Jesus, trying to entrap him. And Jesus was very good at answering questions. There's at one point where he turned around to the Pharisees and to the lawgivers. And asked them a question that they were not able to answer. And it said from that day forward, they neither did ask Him any more questions. Because Jesus was God Himself. They were not going to outsmart Him. They were not going to trap Him. But He was full of grace and He was full of truth. And the words that came out of His mouth, every word that came forth from Jesus' mouth, was the word of God. Even the ones that are not recorded in Scripture. Because He was God Himself in the flesh. But it says the Pharisees came and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven tempting him. They always came up short, but that was their purpose. Their purpose was to tempt him, was to trap him. If you ever run for political office, pretty much every question you'll be asked is not because someone genuinely wants to know. It's because they're trying to trap you in the way that you answer the question. But it says they were seeking a sign from heaven. It doesn't really get into their conversation too deep in verse number 11, other than to say they were questioning him, they were tempting him, and they were seeking a sign from heaven. That word sign means a wonder, a miracle, a sign. They were wanting him to do these things. Yeah. Verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why doth, doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given. Unto this generation. At one point, Jesus said, There will be no sign given to this generation other than the sign of the prophet Jonah. I don't know for sure what the sign of the prophet Jonah was, but all that Jonah did when he went in, he didn't perform miracles. He said, Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be destroyed. He was there to give them the truth and to say, You need to repent, you need to believe what God has said. And Jesus said, That's all you're going to get. And the truth of the matter is, Christ has given enough light to this world for people to be saved. I believe that Jesus Christ, John chapter 1 says, is the light that lighteth every man, that cometh into the world. That means if I try to share the gospel with someone and you try to share the gospel with someone, God has already done a work in their heart by the time you come to them. We're not trusting in our ability to win an argument or to be smart enough or to have the answer to every question, but to go to someone who has a question already within their heart that Jesus Christ is lighting them, the Holy Spirit is drawing them, and we have the answers. We have an advantage we know that within the heart of every man and woman, there is something that desires to know God, something that desires to know the truth, and the witness of the Holy Spirit of God that when we tell them about Jesus Christ, there's something within them that is pulling on their heartstrings, convicting them, and saying, This is correct. Yeah. That is truth. Jesus lights every man that comes into the world. It also says in the Word of God that creation itself is a witness. Yeah. No matter where you were born, no matter what language. You speak, you look up, you see the sun, you see the moon, the stars and the clouds. And there's something within every human being that says there is a God that created this and I must seek it. The apostle Paul tells us that the law is written upon our hearts and our thoughts and our conscience will do one thing, excusing or accusing, either realizing we are guilty. We must turn to God or making excuses for why we do not. That's why at one point in the scriptures, it says they are past feeling, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. There are some people who will not believe, and I know there's people who have doubts. I know there's people who are genuinely seeking the truth, but they're allowing that doubt to to be in their mind and to keep them from coming to Christ, even though they're attempting to. But there's some people who have heard the truth and heard the truth and know the truth and consciously choose to push it away. So much the fact that the word of God says it's as if they have taken their own conscience and seared it with a hot iron so that they cannot anymore feel what God is doing to them. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity within the heart of men and women. There's something within us that longs to know the truth. And you and I have the answer to the questions that are built in to every human being on this earth show us a sign the Pharisees said they weren't looking for a sign he did lots of signs he raised people from the dead he fed thousands when there was no food but yet when the time came that Jesus was dead and he was put in the grave and they hired soldiers and said watch his tomb and tell us what happens the soldiers came back and said the stone is rolled away the angels came he's not there he's risen from the dead And the Pharisees said, here, we're going to take some money and pay you, and we want you to tell people that what happened was that his disciples came in the night and carried his body away. It was not a sign that was preventing them from coming to Christ. It was a hard heart that was rejecting Jesus. Jesus said, no sign shall be given to you. You'll get the sign of the prophet Jonah. You'll hear the word of God, but that's it. As I read that verse, I'm reminded of the story, I believe in Luke chapter 16, of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man died and went to hell. And he looked upward into Abraham's bosom and spoke to Abraham, that other compartment that was paradise. And he said to Abraham, please send Lazarus, that he may dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. It's not a parable. It's an actual true story. Christ did not identify it as a parable, and he named Lazarus. He always identified his parables, and he never named the people in his, sto- in, in his parables. He didn't give them names. He simply told it as a true story. And though it breaks our hearts that the word of God is true, the rich man is still there this morning, and he's still tormented in the flame. But one of the things that he prayed was he said, Lord, please send Lazarus to preach to my brethren lest they also come to this place. He realized that for him it was too late. Abraham told him there is a great gulf fixed. Those who are on your side cannot come and those who are on this side cannot pass to you, even if they desired to. So his thoughts turned to his family, to his brethren. May God put within each of us a concern for our brethren, for our sisters, for our parents, for our family, and for those who, though we may not be related to them, They're somebody's family. They're somebody's mother. They're somebody's child. And they all need Jesus Christ. He said, just send Lazarus. And what did Abraham say? He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That was referring to the Pentateuch. That's the books of Moses. That's Genesis and Exodus. That's the word of God. And the rich man said, well, no, no. They don't believe the Bible. But if, if one rose from the dead, then they would believe. And Abraham said, if they believe not Moses and the prophets... Neither will they believe the one raised from the dead. You see, miracles might very well probably did help some people be pointed to Christ. But there are some people, he said, even if they saw that miracle, that is not the problem. The problem is a heart that does not want to receive the word of God. The Pharisees wanted a sign, and he said there will not be one given them. Verse number 13, Mark chapter 8, And he left them, and entering into the ship, departed again again, To the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. They just left something where there wasn't enough bread for anyone to eat, and Jesus did a miracle and made plenty to feed people and have left over, and they forgot to bring bread. I don't know if they're just forgetful, they said we just don't need to worry about packing a lunch anymore. Jesus will just do it. But it gives us that little fact. Because then it goes to the conversation that Jesus has with the disciples. Verse 15. And he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. In the Bible, leaven is often a sign of sin or of error. As you take that yeast or that leaven, it's what makes the bread rise. In Galatians 5, 9, it's talking about error and people who are pulling them away from Christ. And it says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It's used as an illustration of error, of false doctrine, or of sin because you take and you put a little in. It doesn't just make the bread rise in one part of the dough. It does it to all of it. And that's why the the Jews were told at the time of the Passover to eat unleavened bread. They had to rush out of Egypt. So they they took the unleavened bread. And when they ate the Passover, it was supposed to be unleavened bread. Because it represents error. It represents sin. So he said, beware of the Pharisees and of Herod. They may have some good things to say, but they mix in error. They mix in sin. They mix in pride. They mix in false doctrine. I think they should have been able to tell that what Jesus was telling them was beware of their false teaching. He was using an illustration, but it was something they probably should have been able to figure out. Verse number 15, 16. And they reasoned among themselves saying it is because we have no bread. He must have just been talking about we forgot bread. They weren't really having their mind focused on the spiritual point that Jesus had to say. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, "Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have you your heart yet hardened? The scripture says that we just read when the Pharisees came and asked him the question that Jesus sighed deeply within his spirit. I don't know if he did that here or not, but he had plenty of occasion with the disciples that he could have sighed deeply within his spirit. Because we'll talk a little bit later about Peter in particular. He was always missing the point and the spiritual point of what Jesus had to say. But I'm glad we have a Savior who's very patient with those disciples. Because if we didn't have a Savior who was patient with them, surely He would not be patient with you and I. We can read the Bible and get upset at the people and we forget to see ourselves. We read the Old Testament and the Jews had a good king. They had the word from God. They were doing good. And then they sinned and God punished them and sent them a bad king. And so they got right. And then a few years went by and a couple of kings and they backslid. And we say, well, how could they be so dumb? Why are they not learning? And the disciples were always missing the point. But perhaps God put all those stories in there to remind us of ourselves and that we often miss spiritually the point that God is trying to make to us. We often backslide. We often... Stop doing what it is that God has called us to do. But Jesus was patient with the disciples, same as He kept His promise to the nation of Israel. And though He allowed them to be punished, He stayed faithful and He kept the covenant with them. Verse 18, Having eyes, see ye not? Having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They said unto Him, Twelve. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said seven. So he took five loaves and fed 5,000. And on a separate occasion, he took the four, he took the seven loaves and fed 4,000. And that time they had seven baskets left over. The first time they had 12. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? Again, spiritual application, spiritual illustration, a lot we could say. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whosoever drinks of the water that he gives, eats of the bread that he gives, shall never hunger or never thirst again. He had just done the miracle. They had plenty left over, but he was saying, beware of the false doctrine and the errors from Herod and from the Pharisees. Be careful. Verse number 22 And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. So, what we're doing is we're giving the background to where eventually we'll get to the conversation where Jesus was saying, If you want to be my disciple, there's some things you're going to have to do, some things you'll have to be willing to suffer, decisions you'll have to be able to make. It's a time of miracles. He fed the thousands. Who were hungry. He had the conversation. Now there's another miracle that Jesus performs. Just a few verses to tell this story. It was a blind man. And he took the blind man by the hand. And led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes. And put his hands upon him. He asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said. I see men as trees walking. He began to see forms. Verse 25. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. So Jesus does another miracle. Then an interesting note in verse 26. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any of the town. We say, why would Jesus not want people to know about the wonderful things that he was doing? Well, sometimes when Jesus went and healed people, he would tell them, don't spread it about yet. A couple of reasons, I believe. First of all, because miracles were actually for doctrine. Miracles were actually for manifesting forth the deity of Jesus Christ. He didn't want the focus to be on that there necessarily that a miracle had been done. He wanted the focus to be on the fact ...that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God is here... ...and He's here to proclaim, I am the only way to the Father. You have to believe in Me to be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. He wanted the focus to be on the souls of men and women... ...and on the fact that they needed to believe in Him... ...not necessarily on the miracles that He did. The first miracle, turning the water into wine... ...I believe it says there in that chapter... ...Christ began to manifest forth His glory... It was a manifestation, a proof of the fact that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, that he was who he said he was. And the main point of that was that you need to believe in me as your Savior or else you cannot be saved. You see, it would be great if Christ were here now and any one of us that were hungry could go to him and he could give us bread to eat. If we had a financial need and he could come and provide us money. If we were sick or we had a loved one who was dying and he could go and heal what was wrong with them or if someone we loved had just died, if he could go and raise them from the dead. But a far, far greater miracle and what we need much more than any of those things done in our life is to know that we know Jesus Christ as our Savior that we are in the family of God and that we surrender to him to do his will. The world does not need miracles. The world needs Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. as their savior. And then there's also the practical application that sometimes he would tell people, don't tell anyone about this miracle right now. And he would say that Christ said, because my time is not yet come. The more that His fame spread about. The more that news went about that someone's doing miracles, the more jealous the Pharisees got, and the more they would be ready to come to take him, have him tried at a mock trial and murdered, which was what eventually happened. But his time was appointed. God was in control. Yes, Judas did things that were wrong, and so did Pilate, and so did Caiaphas, and so did the soldiers. But when the fullness of time was come, the Scripture says... Christ was given to be born. It was in God's plan. It was a part of His time. One time they did come to physically take Him and carry Him away, and the Bible says miraculously He passed through the midst of them. He just slipped away, and they didn't see Him anymore because God was protecting Him. And it should give us great comfort to not live our life in fear that God is in control of our life as well. He gives us the breath that we breathe. He is in control of our time and when we are taken, and is appointed unto man wants to die. And we need to make sure we don't have sin in our life that might cut it short as an act of judgment from God. We should use wisdom and wear a seatbelt and not drive 150 miles an hour and try to take care of our bodies and do all of those things. But the bottom line is we can simply do the best we can and there's a God in heaven that can protect us even if we're being stupid and driving too fast. If it's not our time to go, He can protect us. And He's done that for a lot of people. I've heard a lot of people give testimony and say, If it weren't for God keeping me alive until the day that I got saved, I would have never made it. But God had an appointment with them. God had a purpose. God desires people to be saved. And just as God was in control of when they were allowed to take Jesus and crucify him, Christ did not say they took me. He said, I lay my life down. He laid his hands down to the cross. He had the power. That's what he told Peter. We'll get to that story later. He told Peter when he cut the ear off of the Roman soldier, Don't you know that if I wanted to at this very moment I could call to my father in heaven and he could send 10,000 angels to destroy the entire earth and to set me free. And you think that you're going to save me with a sword? But the point in there is made. He laid his life down. He was in control. God was in control. And let us not have fear. There's a lot of things in recent times that we could allow to come into our minds and give us fear. Most of it comes from watching the news. We can be afraid of getting sick. We can be afraid of oppression from the government. And a lot of these things might have legitimate reasons for why we should be concerned. But do not be afraid. God instructed us, fear not. So he told people sometimes, don't go around and spread what I have done. Oftentimes they did it anyway. It continued to spread. And as I said, even a miracle was done when they came to take Jesus, But he told the blind man, don't go around the town and tell it to anyone just yet. Verse 27, Mark 8, 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, whom do men say that I am? Now remember, as he did the miracles, his fame began to spread. Word about what this Jesus was doing started to get around. You miraculously feed thousands of people. You heal sick people. You raise the dead. The news starts to spread. So he said, when people are talking about me, who do they say that I am? Verse number 28. And they answered John the Baptist. But some say Elias and others, one of the prophets. Now... John the Baptist had died in Mark chapter 6. He preached the truth to Herod. He said, though you're the king, you're living in immorality. You're living in sin. It's not lawful for you to do that. So Herod took him, threw him in prison. And you know the story. I don't need to preach all that, but through the, the trickery of Herodias? I think that's right. I believe so. I'm looking for confirmation. Not getting it. I could be wrong. But the woman who came and who hated John the Baptist and ...did a sensual dance and got the king to promise a favor. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a charger. And he was put to death. Herod was even a little bit upset about it. He wanted to just let him go. But he kept his word. At any rate, John the Baptist had died. But some people out there were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist. Perhaps supposing that he had come back to life... ...and was now walking around and doing all of these miracles... Then it says in the text, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're Elijah. If you know the Old Testament in Malachi chapter number four, there was a promise given that the prophet Elijah would be given before The great and terrible day of the Lord. He shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons, the hearts of the sons to the fathers. There's another whole subject and chain of scriptures to study there and a little bit of a debate where John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. People thought that John the Baptist, remember in the early part of the Gospels, they said he is Elijah because they were looking to that Old Testament prophecy. But when they asked Jesus, is John the Baptist Elijah, he said he would have been Elijah to you if you had been ready to accept me. In other words, he could have prepared the way for Christ if the nation of Israel and the world had been ready to accept him as king, then the ministry of John the Baptist would have been ushering in Jesus as king. But because they rejected him, he was not. Elijah to them. He was not fulfilling that role. I personally believe that in Revelation, I think chapter 11, when it tells the story of the two witnesses that will come and that will preach, I think one of them is Elijah because of that prophecy that was given in Malachi chapter 4. But at any rate, the Jews knew this prophecy, and they said, perhaps Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Perhaps he is Elijah. Then it says, or One of the prophets, maybe another prophet has come back to life doing miracles like as of old. There's a prophecy where Moses told the people there will be another prophet like unto myself that will be given. I believe that that was a prophecy of Jesus Christ, that as Moses came and did a lot of the things for the people, Jesus would come. But they knew of that prophecy. They knew the prophecy of Elijah. So some people said, this guy who's going around doing miracles, he's John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some said he's Elijah. Some said he's another one of the prophets. Verse 29, And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth, and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. I want to clap and say, Good job, Peter. He got in his own way a lot. He made a lot of mistakes, but he got it right that time. Christ means anointed. It was the title that was given for the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament who would come, who would be the ruler and reigner of the earth. And Peter recognized he's not John the Baptist, he's not Elijah, he's not just a prophet, he's God himself, he's Christ. He is the Messiah. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. We'll talk a little bit later, probably next week, at this rate in the message about mistakes that Peter made. And he makes some mistakes even in this text. Just a few verses later, he already starts to get it wrong. But praise the Lord, at least he had it right who Jesus Christ was. Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This would be what we would call a parallel passage. It's the same account. Sometimes when you read parallel passages, you get new information, not because the gospels contradict one another, but because you get it from a different viewpoint. When you get one witness to tell the story, then you get two, then you get three, then you get four. You start to get the full picture. They do not contradict each other, but sometimes they add to the information because one disciple was giving a point that the other disciple simply didn't reference. But this would be a parallel passage. Verse 14. And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He recognized his deity. Then we look at what Jesus said in verse number 17 which is not recorded in the other text. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. It's so funny to contrast how great Peter was here and how much Jesus gave him a commendation to just a few verses later how Peter got it so wrong and how much Jesus corrected him. But right here, he he will say to Peter in a little bit, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. But in this verse, he says to him, This is not the things of men. This is not something that naturally by your flesh you came to that conclusion or that someone else Pointed out to you intellectually. But rather my father which is in heaven has revealed within your heart that this is the truth. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And remember how I said let us not be intimidated if we try to share our faith. Don't be worried if you don't have the answer to every single question. Because God in heaven is already working on revealing to that human heart the truth. That Jesus is the son of God and he is the only way of salvation. But he said Peter You got this one right. God revealed this unto you. And I say unto thee, also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We've gone over that verse. We preached on it a few weeks ago. Um, We don't need to go all through it, but it is funny if you think that Peter was the first pope because of what Jesus said here. Look down about six verses. He also said, get thee behind me, Satan. So I'm just saying. But he was not telling Peter would be the cornerstone of the church. We know he was the small stone. Jesus is the rock and cornerstone. And he was taking the statement that Peter made and saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. And notice it says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You may have heard this preached before, but tell me what a gate is. Is a gate an offensive weapon? A gate is a defensive mechanism. And what he was telling Peter is that when the church goes forth with the gospel to attack hell and to take back territory that belongs to the devil, the church is not just supposed to sit back and play defense and hope that they don't come get us. We're supposed to play offense. We're supposed to preach the word. We're supposed to go to those who are lost. We're supposed to be salt and be light and stand for Jesus Christ. And Jesus promised as we do that, the gates of hell, the defenses of hell will not prevail against us. We will have the victory. Verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I don't think he's saying we have the power apart from God to do whatever we want, but he did say the way he's choosing to work is through his church. He has committed unto us the work of reconciliation. If we refuse to serve God, yes, I believe oftentimes he'll go find someone else to do it, But there may be some things he's called me to do, some things he's called you to do, that if we do not stand up, stand our ground and do what is right, there will be some things that God desired for us to do that do not get done. What's he saying? I believe he's simply saying he's chosen us as the human instruments to be the one, that if we go forth in his will and ask for it according to his will, in his name, in the power of the Holy Spirit and all the conditions he's given us, we will have the victory. But if we refuse to serve him, he's going to leave that responsibility with us to be his witnesses. Verse 20, then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus, the Christ. Again, mirroring what was said in that other passage. Let's look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6 in verse number 66. We know in Revelation, the number of the Antichrist is 666. I just thought it an interesting antidote that this reference in the Bible says in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. It was people turning their back on Christ. What does that mean? I don't think a whole lot because the Chapters and the verse numbers were not inspired. The Bible was given in letter form. And later people went back and broke it up into chapters, broke it up into verses. And I'm glad they did so because it made for easy reference. But sometimes you might need to look. Well, does the next chapter continue that thought? That verse actually kind of stops in the middle. you got to look and continue the thought. So anyway, it's, I thought it was interesting. You may not. You can have it for free. Verse number 67. Then Jesus Then said Jesus unto the twelve... Will ye also go away? Part of what I want to get to in this text is how Jesus wanted to make the point to his disciples. It's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be popular. They were going through a lot of miracles and victories. But he had to let them know there will come a day where you will be persecuted, chased, put to death, hated because you're my disciple. And I want you to be ready for that. Peter and the disciples had their eye on the kingdom promises. They were looking for Jesus to defeat the Roman army, to sit upon the throne and to deliver them from all of their earthly oppressors right at that moment because the Old Testament promised that. But Jesus was trying to let them know I'm here now to die for your sins. I'm going to heaven. I'll come back at an hour when you expect not. And after that is the time when I will set up my kingdom. But I want your focus to be on what my focus is, the gospel. He actually told them that over and over and over again. In Acts chapter number one, as Jesus went and he gave them, he was giving them the great commission. He was getting ready to ascend up into heaven. And the disciples piped up and they said, before you leave, we have one more question. Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom again? They still were expecting it. Jesus told them, It is not for you to know the times, the days, nor the seasons that the Father hath set in his hand, but my Father only. And then he said, But ye shall be witnesses unto me after the Holy Spirit is given. Judea, Jerusalem. The uttermost parts of the earth, don't be worried about when Jesus is coming back. He said we will never be able to know. Our focus is not to be looking to the sky waiting for him to come back, though we should with expectation know he's coming, but rather keep our heads down serving him because we know he's coming back. Our focus should be on the gospel. I believe he told his disciples over and over again, Look for me to come back. I'll come back at an hour you don't know. Preach the gospel. I don't believe he told them, look for the antichrist and be ready to go on the run and hide in the wilderness for half of it or for all of it. I believe he told them, preach the gospel till I come back until I rapture you out. You can make preparations. You can do whatever you want. And if you did during the power storm, you were probably happy. We all lost power. I might do some of it. But our focus should not primarily be on building bunkers and batteries and bottled water and be prepared to, as as people did through Y2K, be prepared for the storm that came. Do that if you want to. But as a child of God, don't be trying to get ready to meet the Antichrist. Be ready to get to meet Jesus Christ and to give the gospel to a whole bunch of people so they can meet him as well. That's the focus of the church is supposed to be the gospel. Don't worry about when I'm setting up the kingdom he told them, rather simply go preach the gospel. But as I was saying, we may think Jesus was telling his disciples it will be hard to serve me. Be prepared for trials, be prepared and if we think that it will be popular to serve Jesus or that people won't turn their backs on us, just look at what, was, what happened in these verses. People turned back. They went away. It wasn't popular anymore, so they quit following Jesus. And even Jesus looked at the 12 and said, Will ye also go away? We may go through those times as well. Let us simply keep serving Jesus. Trust Him with the results of what happens. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, Lord, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the son of the living God. I want this morning to stand with Peter and say, Jesus, I know and I'm sure that thou art the Christ. Some wonderful words from Peter. Next week, we'll look to the text. And he started doing wrong again and had to get corrected. But praise the Lord. For his testimony. And as we head next week. Towards talking about the message. Of what Jesus said. It's really like. And what it means. To be his disciple. It means that we have to be willing. To deny ourselves, Take up our cross. And follow him. Not always easy. Not always popular. Not always fun. And he never promised he would. It, It would be. But I'll promise you this. It'll always be worth it. Heavenly Father. As we bow now for prayer. And as we have a time of music and prayer for the invitation, I pray that we would dwell upon this text. I pray that as we go home, we would bathe in the Word of God on our own, listening to preaching, that we would come back over and over again to the text and realize this is the Word of God. This is what will make the world make sense. This is what will give answers to those around us who do not have them. Help us be faithful to serve you in a world that does not like the fact that we are serving you. Thank you that you're a gracious God that though we mess up like Peter did, you're patient with us just like you were with Peter. And thank you for his testimony. And may we stand with him and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ. Thank you this morning that we can rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Whatever burdens we may be facing, whatever we're going through, whatever persecution may come for being a follower of Jesus Christ, Our names are written in heaven, and that should be enough. As David said, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. We have enough to rejoice in, to be thankful for. Help us stand tall and true and serve you in a day and hour when it may not be popular to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Bless now as the music plays, and we have a time of prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.